0: You know, it struck me um, during the first service, here we are singing about the goodness of God, um, and, and one of the luxuries I don't have um, as a pastor, as a counselor, is the belief that, that people, while they're singing about the goodness of God, aren't hurting or aren't struggling, because I know you are. Um, it's hard to sing about the goodness of God in the midst of pain, whether it's marital disintegration and family issues and money problems and chronic illnesses, aging and death, and, and the understanding of, of what it takes to, to be held through a crisis. You know, atheists often point to this as an error, like we're somehow delusional to sing about or to talk about the goodness of God even when things can be so bad. I don't think they understand that taking God out of the story of our lives doesn't reduce the amount of pain. If you've got bone cancer, you've got bone cancer whether there is a God or there isn't a God. That, that, removing God from our story doesn't remove the pain. If, you're, if we're in a hard marriage, removing God from our lives doesn't make that marriage suddenly easy. Now it's just a hard marriage and there is no God. Removing God does not change the truth that sometimes we have to choose between bad choices. It just moves the redemption, or the hope for redemption, the hope that our struggles can have some kind of value that we can't see right now. It removes the comfort of the truth that there is a God who loves and who cares. God does not keep each sparrow from falling, but He knows about the sparrow, and He cares about the sparrow, and He doesn't see their little lives as a waste. He doesn't see... The, way they, what, the, the existence of the little bird, he doesn't see that as some kind of a wasted thing. He cares about it and he loves it, and he's engaged in it. If not the sparrow, then certainly not ours. He doesn't see our lives as a waste that we get the comfort or the future of growing in the knowledge of God and His grace forever. That's our comfort. The pattern of Peter's letter is similar to our process of Bible study. Observe, interpret, and apply. This is the art and science of studying Scripture in the same way that, that, that studying something scientifically through empirical evidence requires the scientific method. That studying something reasonably, discussing something through rationality, it requires the rules of logic. There are rules for studying things historically, and there are rules and guidelines for studying revelation in a way that is effective, that's most likely to lead to truth. The only source of knowledge that has no rules is intuition, which is why it's the least trustworthy and least applicable of all of them. Um, When we look at this, we see this. Peter starts with the knowledge, then the understanding of the importance of the knowledge, and then we're moving and have been moving over the last few weeks into the clear application of that knowledge. How our lives should be changed by the truth. If you go back and were to look, when when Pike and I were teaching together year after year, the, the title of the Easter sermon was, This Changes Everything. We'd go back the next year and go, okay, what do we want our title to be this year? And it just feels like, no, I mean, really, this changes everything. And next year's title is, seriously, we're not kidding, this changes everything. If there's a guy who came and lived and experienced life as a human, though he was God, and then, and then died and rose from the grave, listen, if that happened, that kind of changes everything. Everything has to be reinterpreted. Everything has to be rethought. Everything we would assume. And so if you go back, you can actually see the, like the, the title of our Easter ser- series every year was some version of the phrase, this changes everything, because it does. So I want you to hear that application is hard to teach to people you know. Well, I've done, I've done traveling speaking, and I've gone and spoken to people I didn't know well, and you can preach about application much better with people you don't know. It's much, it's much easier just to tell people how they need to change their lives because you don't know what's going on in their lives. It's easy to get preachy about people's stories when you don't know their story. I know some of you cannot make your marriage better. That it would require a supernatural miracle like parting the Red Sea or the speaking of a donkey, which is probably closer in some cases. <laughs> this, that, that, that that's, required, that's the kind of thing it would require. A miracle or a radical conversion of your spouse. And you've been waiting for decades, and it doesn't seem to be coming. So this is the hard thing about applications. Here's what I know. I'm going to get up here, and I'm going to speak application from the the letter of 2 Peter. And those of you who are carrying 90% of the burden of the relationships in your lives, you're going to be the ones going, how do I change? And the people who are carrying 10% of the burdens in their lives, who see themselves as martyrs, and who feel like they're justified in being abusive and horrible, you're the ones going, I'm justified in not training, and not learning, and not growing, and not changing. And when you know people well enough, it's really hard to say, hey, we need to to step it up around here, because I know those of you who probably don't need to step it up around here are the ones who are going to hear that the loudest. And the people who really need to step it up around here, you're probably not going to hear it. It makes application feel a little difficult. It's really, talk with Dr. Bob on his porch the other day, he was like, I want to see some application come out of this last bit of 2 Peter. It's like, I do too. He's like, no, I mean your sermon. And I was like, oh, I meant the people in the church who need to make application. <laughs> like, I really would love to see some of that. That's a, that's a real goal. And by the way, that is all of it. We all do need to hear this message. It's not finger pointing. That's not uh, my style anymore, if it ever was. It's just... Some of you, some of us are going to be tempted from hearing this application to take on a burden that Christ didn't give you. Your feelings of guilt are giving you. And that's not the calling here. The work to be done is urgent. But also, we need to be taking more part in it overall as a community. Um, I'll wrap up reminding us when we're done today that all of this application is about His glory not about our guilty feelings. There's work to be done, and the need is urgent. And we've got to listen to the Spirit for what He has for us. Because sometimes, by the way, it is extraordinary. Sometimes it is everything. Sometimes it isn't just 90%, it's 100%. Sometimes it's everything we have to give to the point of death. (coughs) It certainly was for Peter. Starting in verse 11. Since all these things, meaning the heaven and the earth, are thus to be dissolved... That's what he's just described, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. I'm moving something from the middle of the sermon to right here, because I want to come back to it a few times. I remember years ago having someone use this example. Imagine that God transported you in time and space to the top of the World Trade Center in New York City on September 11th, 2001, at 7.46 a.m. Now a plane is going to hit in one hour at 8.46 a.m. What would your life be like? Knowing that this is coming. Knowing that there's going to come a moment when there's no more getting out of the building. When, if you're not below a certain floor, by 8.46, you're not getting out. That's an analogy, a modern analogy for what Peter is saying here. Okay, since you know that one of these days, you're going to look outside and the sky is going to be rolling up like a scroll with a great rush. And you're going to start seeing the things in the heavens, the sun and the moon and the stars dissolve, be unmade, uncreated. They've been created and then there's going to be a day of uncreation. Since you know that's coming, how should you be living? And that's the question that Peter's going to ask in this section. If you were there at 746, how would you be living? Would you go like, hey, you know what? I've, I've got some time. i will answer some emails first. No, you'd have this sense of urgency. You know what? I need to feed my Farmville people. They're, I mean, the timer just hit. I gotta, I'm preaching to myself here. But this, this whole, this, the, the things that we do to waste time, would we be thinking along those lines or would we be going, I probably ought to be investing every minute I've got left in getting people out of the building? I probably need to be focusing my attention on everything I've got to get people down below a certain floor by 846. That would be our mindset. And that's what Peter's saying. Since you know this is coming, <coughs> how are you living your life? Now, the first time I <coughs> read through this on a Tuesday morning with the guys, um, uh, we read through it and discussed it for a few minutes. And then, and then Paul goes, now this is, you notice this word? And I hadn't, I'd skimmed right over it. This is an interesting word here, isn't it? Hastening. So I'm back up there. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the Lord, coming of the day of God, I keep doing that, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. I'm sorry, hastening the coming of the day of God? Honestly, I'm not sure what to say about this. This seems to indicate that we have some role in speeding up when it comes. Like, it's today, it's going to come at a certain point, and somehow we have a role in moving that forward? At, that seems ridiculous to me now there 's a lot of different directions I could go with this, but we talked about how that, that this letter, especially this last section of this letter, follows aligns with very closely jesus 's teachings in matthew twenty four and twenty five the Olivet discourse. So I want to find something. Is there something of all the different passages that maybe could be what Peter's referencing here. What does it mean that we're hastening the day, that we're somehow involved in that? So would there be something in in Matthew 24 and 25 that seems to be what Peter's debriefing here? So it sure would be nice if there was a passage there that referenced maybe what it means to hasten the day. And good news, of the choices, one of them is there. Matthew 24, 14 says this, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. <clears throat> now, so far as I can tell, this is one of the few passages in the, only, uh, in the entire Scripture that seem to directly link something that our efforts can impact that may be involved in the boxes that God is checking when it comes to, okay, it's time. He's got, he's got this series of boxes that he checks. Okay, now, now this, okay, that's there, that. And we don't know what all is there. We don't know what all is on God's checklist before it's time to call everybody out of the pool. We don't know what all he's watching for. We guess at it, and he reveals some of them to us. He will say, hey, this, this is going to happen. Hey, this is going to happen, and hey, this is going to happen. We call that prophecy when he says, these are things that are going to happen. Be watching for these because they're significant. And when you see those happen, no, I've just checked a box. When all the boxes are checked, I'm coming. And you don't know what all of them are. That's why he's coming like a thief in the night. But it seems like one of them here in the a Discourse indicates that depending upon how you interpret the concepts of proclaimed, maybe testimony, and all nations, which is the Greek word ethnos, you can reach different conclusions as to where we are so far in checking off this box and what our role in it is. So one example, one ministry I looked up is called the Joshua Project. Now the Joshua Project is a ministry that takes data from many, many different ministries to try to estimate where we are along the idea of getting the word to all nations, getting the gospel to all nations. And one way of understanding, so theirs is the most conservative, meaning theirs would indicate the most work left to be done. Um, <clears throat> they estimated 17,400 total people groups in the world. Now, of course, in one sense, the word nation here, in one sense, the word, the word has been proclaimed in all nations, certainly national boundaries it has long ago. By some standards, that was done in, in uh, Acts chapter 2, chapter 3, when Peter gives his sermon, and people from the, around the entire world are there to hear it. And it's spoken in their own languages supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. So you know, by one sense it's done, but obviously by some sense maybe it isn't. This is one of them. 17,400 total people groups. Many, many of them in the middle of what we would call the nation of India. Different people groups, different ethnos groups. So they would say there's 17,400 ethnicities in the world. Of those, 7,400 are still unreached. So 10,000 down... 7,400 to go. They still represent approximately 3.3 billion people, unreached people groups. <clears throat> so if you were thinking, well, I mean, going to be a missionary doesn't really serve any point anymore. We've, we've got everybody. We've reached everybody. We've found everybody. We've gotten the gospel to everybody. No, we haven't. In fact, we're only about 60% of the way there by their standards. Of the 7,382 languages in the world, 1,849 languages have never, the gospel has never been translated into those languages. So about one in every six languages is still not, does not have the gospel in their heart language. When I read that, when I look at that, I think it's got to be possible that here in Tyler, Texas, you know, we are the little bitty diamond on the little cowboy on the buckle of the Bible Belt. That's Tyler, Texas, right? We have got to be a launching platform. A church like this has got to be a launching platform. I've got to assume that there are people out there in the room right now or online listening who realize God has called me to this. God has called me to unreached people groups, to to foreign missions, to Bible translations. I'd love to really encourage you to think about that. To listen to God about that. It sounds like there's plenty of work to do. Regardless, I think Peter's interpreting Jesus' words as meaning our task remains to proclaim Him. We have several universities here, or a couple of colleges here and several other um, universities in this area that draw people from all over the world. We have a school like Brookhill that brings in students from all over the world to, to be educated there. These students, man, if you're like, I can't imagine going to some, you know, some village in the middle of India, well, good news, they are Indian kids who are at our schools who desperately need to hear the gospel, and you can outnumber them. You can invite just a couple of them to your family to dinner and hang out with them and let them see week after week the gospel lived out in your family. That'd be pretty cool. These are all opportunities that are there, and the church will come alongside you in doing those. I think, I, think I, I jokingly said in the first service, you know, if Jesus wanted us to go into the world and make disciples, he should have said that. Like he should have been more clear about that that's what he wants us to do is to go into the world and make disciples. For those who aren't familiar with, that familiar with the Bible, he, he does say that. That's actually a direct quote. Um, this fits with the concept of God's patience in any case. There's still more to hear. There's more to receive. We're still getting the word out. I think both too much and too little can be made of this, but my question for each of us is this. What is your role in getting the Word out? Are we duplicating ourselves? Are we multiplying ourselves into getting the Word out, where the gospel is getting out into the world, and we're involved in that ministry? If not, we're just throwing our lives on a burn pile. Everything else we do, it's just being thrown on the burn pile. I'll come back to that. Verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. This phrase, spot or blemish, uh, that's not the first time we've seen this in Peter's writings. While we're waiting for this new righteous creation because we live right now in an unrighteous creation... We want to be diligent to choose righteousness ourselves. It's the same kind of moral rightness that Peter used to describe Christ himself in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, describing him as the Passover Lamb. <coughs> Verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Same language. That's who he is. And by the way, it's the opposite of the false teachers that we just read about the last chapter, who are the spots and blemishes. Check this out. Second Peter two thirteen says this. These false teachers are suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. So these false teachers are the very spots and blemishes, the very impurities within us that we don't want there. So as a church, one, as the church, we don't want to be recognized by our spots and blemishes, so to speak. I think this is a little bit like this language. Obviously, it's taking it to the the language of the the Passover lamb or the, the animals that were sacrificed this idea that an animal that was marred or blemished was not good for a sacrifice. Now, what does that mean for us, though? Because he's not talking about some genetic defect or something like a little lamb might have. What's he talking about? Here's what I think. Because I think, as we teach it to our young people, you can't become pure on your own. That's just silliness. It, it was, I was raised with such a bad... I love getting to teach to students um, during camp about sex and dating and that kind of stuff. Mainly just because I feel like I'm kind of getting revenge on how badly it was taught to me as a teenager. And so I'm like, I'm getting to correct some of this junk. But this idea that somehow by, by maybe uh, staying away from bad stuff, that would somehow make me righteous. That that was the key. The key was that if I would just be righteous, then I could be righteous. That if I would just purify myself, then I could be pure. And I knew I was <clears throat> hosed about that from the very beginning. It just wasn't going to happen, right? And since it was all up to me, kind of a failure before I started. To teach our young people, no, no, Christ is the only one who can purify us. He's the lamb without blemish or defect. He's the one whose blood purifies us. Then we have a choice to make as believers, as followers of Christ. And the choice we have to make is, am I going to live according to my identity as a pure person? Am I going to accept who Christ has made me and live according to that new identity? I am pure. Therefore, I get to choose pure options. It's not going to be perfect, but praise God, my imperfections aren't going to overwhelm His perfections. My impure decisions aren't going to somehow mess up His perfect purity. I'm not going to mess up His blood in such a way. I'm not going to get a sin back on my record. Here's how I see it. I kind of see it as like when you go through um, kids' pictures especially daughters, you always find a picture of the daughter where at some point she decided to put on makeup. You guys have these pictures of your like two and three year old daughters when they're like they found mom's makeup or just a magic marker and they're like, I'm going to put on makeup like mommy, right? And they, they come out and they don't look in the mirror, they just come out and either they lie about it, like, did you put on makeup? No. <laughs> I mean, their face is like, no, huh, What what makes you ask that? No idea what you're talking about. Or they've got marker all over their face, like, look, I put on makeup like mommy because they got the green marker and did this on their face. That's a spot or a blemish. Right? It's 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 not it doesn't change the identity of the child. Sometimes it's even the child trying to attain something on their own that's not right for them. So often the God's blessings for us when we try to take care of them ourselves. In fact, that's not a bad way to understand sin throughout all throughout scripture. Is when God says, hey, I've got a good thing for you. And you're like, great, I'll get right on that. No, 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 I don't want your help. You're just going to mess this up for me, right? Think how many stories fall into that. This is the the false teachers are the spots and the blemishes in a church. The decisions to live outside of our purity, there's spots and blemishes for us. And then he says, by the way, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. In other words, when he comes back, he wants us to be found living in harmony and peace with one another and unmarked by the world around us, recognizable from it. But then notice this word diligent, be diligent to be found. In other words, he wants us to work hard at this. In fact, this is a great Greek word. The idea here is the base root is the concept of zeal, passion. We need to be zealously working at this. Um, one commentator used this phrase. This word indicates, quote, an external sense of quick movement. In other words, get on it. Now, what are you waiting for? Get. I gave you an instruction. Now do it. Now, and keep doing it. I didn't tell you to stop. Keep going. There should be the sense of urgency. This is where the 9-11 example came in in, in the first hour. There's a sense of urgency here. Hey, it's only like an hour. That was good. Y'all all looked up when I did that. That was really freaky. I don't usually, everybody's like, I was, I was texting about lunch. You interrupted my text. <laughs> in other words, church, get on it. That's what Peter's saying. Get on this. Hey, there's something to be done. 15, and count the patience. Remember his patience, his slowness. It's not slowness, it's patience. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters... When he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Man, there's some cool stuff in this passage, huh? <clears throat> you probably, as you read, th- if, if you read through that, you're like, I- I- this is going to be a fun one to unpack. So I've got a question here first. So Peter is making the claim here in this section. Hey, you guys know Paul. He wrote about this stuff too. That's what Peter's saying. This isn't just me saying this. Paul said this. Now, I don't know about you, but it weirds me out the thought of Peter and Paul knowing each other. I don't know why. I think it's the same effect as like when you see your teacher at the store when you're a kid, and you're like, you're not where you're supposed to be. Like, you're supposed to... Does anybody know they let you out? I get that same... I get the same look when kids meet when they see me at the store. Your kids, when they see me at the store, they're like, does anyone know he's out? Like, who should we call? He should be in the church. Like, I think it, I think it kind of weirds them out. Like, that. I, that's... It's kind of like that for me. When I think about the Apostle Paul, when I realize, like someone pointed out, that his speech on Mars Hill, when he starts by saying, O men of Athens, that that's a line from Plato's Republic. The thought of Paul reading Plato weirds me out for some... Paul's just supposed to write letters. He doesn't read stuff. Like He doesn't have a life outside of my experience of him, right? Isn't that our natural tenet? We're so egocentric like that. The thought of Peter and Paul reading each other's letters it weirds me out for some reason. I don't know why. It shouldn't. It just, it just does. There's some cool stuff here. So so Peter is assuming, hey, you've read Paul's stuff. He talks about these very same things. It's a little more complicated than the way I put it. <laughs> right? It can be tough to understand at times. I get that. I love that Peter said, I mean, Peter's a fisherman from Galilee. It's not like he's trained in classical philosophy like Paul is. He's not trained in classical theology like Paul was. He's not trained in the pharisaical arts like Paul was. He's a fisherman. And so just like you and me, sometimes you're reading through Paul and you get done with a section, you're like, I have no idea what I just read. Peter's going to go like, yeah, I hear you, bro. Like I, me neither. Like I just, right over my head, right? So I think that's fascinating. And I love even the affection in this. In fact, I'm going to tell you now what my opinion, my thought on this. We know this is near the end of Peter's life. He says so in this letter. We don't know where Peter was when he wrote this for sure. Peter dies in Rome. So does Paul. And there is, according to church tradition, there is one tradition that Peter and Paul went to Rome together to establish the church in Rome together. And eventually were arrested together and martyred together. Paul beheaded because he was a Roman, uh, a Roman citizen and could not be crucified. The only way you can execute a Roman citizen is to behead them. And Peter crucified upside down after his family is murdered. One one concept is that's together. Which would at least create the possibility that Peter is writing this book in the cell next to Paul. Maybe in the cell with Paul. I've, I've said so many times when I talk about Paul being a prisoner and the same thing as Peter. Man, if you're chained to Paul, I have a funny feeling like he doesn't seem like the prisoner. I bet you feel like the prisoner. If you're a Roman guard and you're stuck taking care of these two guys, my guess is you're hearing the gospel a lot. And, and this is a beautiful picture of the thought that, that Peter's right there <coughs> writing this letter <clears throat> and reading out to Paul. Here's what I just wrote about you. <laughs> I think they were friends. <clears throat> I'm going to unpack that a little more here. But let's, so you want to hear their story a little bit? We only know of a couple of interactions for sure that they're there. Um. Paul writes specific letters to specific churches, Corinth, Rome, Philippi, Thessalonica, these. Peter's two letters are general letters, but again, Paul's letters would have been circulated because apparently they were seen as scripture, as we just saw here. So I was wondering, which letter Paul's referring to? Peter's referring to? I don't know. No one knows for sure, but this became an immediate curiosity for me. When Peter says, you guys have read Paul's stuff. He writes about this stuff too. What's he talking about? What letter? So I tried to look around a little bit, see if I could figure out for myself which letter. And it actually only took a few trials before I found one I liked. So what I need is a passage where Paul jumps to eschatology talk, where, where he's talking about these, these ideas, similar themes, about how we ought to be waiting on the day of the Lord, which is coming like a thief in the night. And I came to my conclusion, and I think Peter here is referencing his copy of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Ready? First Thessalonians four fifteen, all the way to five eleven. I think this is what Peter is noting when he references. Well, Paul talks about this stuff too. A little more complicated than me. It's hard to understand. People are twisting it, but it's the same thing. Ready? For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Remember this is Paul writing. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So I don't know if you agree with me or not, but I think that's the passage that Peter is referring to that's so similar to Peter's writing and clearly comes from Matthew 24 and 25 as well. I picture Peter looking down at his own notes or copy of Paul's letter or just discussing it with Paul in the next cell. The complexity and thinking of the ways that people could pervert that, that people would abuse that. And we know from Paul's other writings that people were perverting and abusing that. They were taking advantage of that. And that is a stop to this day, by the way. We still have people who pervert these things. We'll talk more about that in a second. Let's take a second and look at the, what else is communicated in verse 15. The count of, and count the patience of our Lord of salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So I'm going to run through this quickly, but we have two accounts of them meeting. The first one is near the beginning of Paul's ministry. So we don't know if Saul, when he was Saul of Tarsus, before he was Paul, if he ever met Peter. They certainly would have known of each other. Maybe one of those times that Peter was called in before the Sanhedrin, there's a young Pharisee over there glaring at him, and he's glaring back at them. Maybe Saul and Peter had met before the stoning of Stephen, before Stephen was martyred. It's always, it's very possible. But certainly they would have known about each other. They would have been bitter enemies at that stage. So Paul, who was then Saul, was working in that, <clears throat> that world. Then Saul was captured by Christ, was, was converted by Christ in Acts 9. Several years later, after his first mission trips, he presents himself to the leaders of the Christian church as it was in Jerusalem. He presents his understanding of the gospel and especially how the gospel connected to Jewish identity and circumcision. This was the big battle going on immediately in the gospel was the question of how it relates to Jewish faith and circumcision. At the council, it seems the debate wasn't getting anywhere. Paul was making his best arguments. Ironically, Paul was fighting for the Gentiles, Paul the super Jew. Paul, the extraordinary Jew, the, the Pharisee, the man who had lived his whole life this way, he's the one fighting that it doesn't over-impact Christianity. But others are saying, no, no, you can't become a Christian until you become a Jew. You need to follow all the Jewish rites and the Jewish laws and the Jewish rituals, and then you can gain the Messiah. And Paul's like, no, you don't. You can go straight to Messiah. You can skip all these rituals and rites. Yes, he came from the Jews. Yes, that's important as he writes about in Romans. But... That's not necessary for salvation. We don't have to follow all those rights. This is the battle that's going on. And Paul's not getting anywhere. Those arguing for one side and Paul arguing for the other side and his followers, and they're discussing this and they're not getting anywhere. And then someone steps up and speaks and it's Peter. This member, this ignorant fisherman, this untrained and uneducated fisherman from Galilee, gets up and speaks. And when he speaks, it ends the argument. His relative authority is very clear in the early church. This debate's going on. Finally, Peter's done. And he stands up and he says, here's the answer. Essentially, what Peter says is, Paul's right. And when he says it, the argument's kind of over. And they send Paul out. There's a little bit of compromise there. But for the most part, um, Peter backs Paul's view on this. With this mandate, Paul and Barnabas are sent back to the Gentiles. It's an intriguing scene in which Peter's relative authority to everyone is made very clear. How did Paul feel about that? Here he was arguing his very best with all his training, getting nowhere, and Peter says a couple of sentences and then the fight's over. Did Paul feel affirmed by that? Was he encouraged by that? Or did he feel overshadowed? Was he concerned about the early church? How did he feel about that? He left pretty hurriedly. This dispute would continue, by the way, that very same dispute would continue for years. And it seems like when the writings, especially of Paul, in the early church, there continued to be this little sect within the early Christians that insisted that you had to become a Jew before you could become a Christian. Eventually, this became understood as a heresy. No, you don't. There's no behavioral responsibility outside of putting faith in Christ to save you. But this battle continued, and apparently they would follow Paul around. Paul would go preach the gospel, and people would convert, and then right behind him would come these Judaizers. He didn't like it. Look at what happens here. This is fascinating. Paul had come to Antioch at some point when Peter came to Antioch at some point when Paul was there. For a while Peter and the other Jewish believers ate with the Gentile believers freely as you would expect. But then something changed. Check this out in Galatians chapter 2. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Cephas is Peter, by the way. with the knowledge that he was right in Christ. He confronts Peter on his hypocrisy, and even pointed out the danger of Peter leading poorly, because everybody else, even Barnabas, followed Peter's example. Yet everybody thinks they want to be the leader. Some think the line, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically, indicates that everyone sided with Peter in this confrontation, but I don't see it. I think that indicates that everyone was following Peter before the confrontation, and here's what's wild. You go, well, what happened? What happened, Paul? The, new, the upstart in Christianity confronts Peter, the, the established kind of leader of, the, of early faith. He confronts him. What happened? We don't know. I don't say. What we do have is Peter's second letter in which he refers to Paul as beloved and his brother, <clears throat> as having wisdom given to him by God. This has to be the greatest compliment Peter knows how to give. Remember Peter at Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And they throw out a bunch of answers and Peter, and then he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, wow, blessed are you, Peter, because you sure didn't come up with that. I don't know where you got, who told you? Like, I don't know where you got that, but it must be from God. There is wisdom here that you just delivered that must come from God. I think for for Peter, the greatest compliment would be, listen, he's also got wisdom that comes from God. He goes on to describe him as works as other scriptures. This is crazy for Peter to say that Paul's writings in the A.D. 60s and A.D. 70s. Hey, you want to hear from God? You want wisdom from God? Read Deuteronomy. You want wisdom from God? Read Isaiah. Read the prophets. Read the law. Read the Torah. And read Paul's letters. Wow. This is a huge a word of support from the Apostle Peter for Paul's letters as being Scripture. Already it was seen that way. So we know, we, we believe very likely they died together, they served together, they worked together and they're the end of their lives. I think it's possible that these two young lions by the end of their lives were defined not as young and aggressive alpha males, but as the sheep of their Savior, as the shepherd of their flocks. And they were humbled enough to love each other as brothers, as two men who both know they need a Savior. How they must have found agreement on the idea that they continue to do what they don't want to do. And they keep making mistakes and they keep blowing it. And their Savior's so good, he continues to save them anyway. As some man who prizes friendship above almost everything else, my friendship with my bride, my friendship with my kids, my fe- friendship with my fellow ministers and with all of you, the friendship of these pillars of the faith humbles me and inspires me. This is a real thing and it can happen. And now Peter's final words in this letter is which he believed was near the end of his life. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care you're not carried away by the errors of lawless people and lose your own stability. Remember the theme of this book knowing the truth of Christ and living the life that comes with the truth of that knowledge. Never let anything come between you and that knowledge or that life. Matter what humans do around you, don't be distracted. Build on a foundation that is stable and unshakable from the efforts of lawless and oh-so-clever people who want nothing more than to shake it. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Knowing and what knowing and what does that knowing mean? Mere knowledge is not sufficient, of course. Growing is the instruction. That's the action verb here is growing. As John Redford Sr. pointed out before the service, we can always grow, especially in these things, forever. This is never a bad idea to grow in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ. When you stop growing, you're decaying. You need to live it. It's an integral part of our lives, an integrated part of our identity. The question would be, are we growing nearer? Are we like the tree that grows, tries to grow out from under the shade so that it can get more and more and more into the light? I wonder, so a series of questions I'm going to ask you here at the end of our service. The series of questions is going to be about the application. When you look at your own life, are you nearer now to Christ than you were? Have you moved more into his light? Are you serving more? I know if if I asked you to write down the names of all of our deacons, you probably couldn't do it. But if I asked you to write down the top 30 or 40 people who you see serving in our church, unknowingly, you'd be writing probably the list of our deacons. That's just the way it works. Those who lead in service, not by title, but by action. See, everything here is going to melt. Only eternal things will last. That's the burn pile. We're in East Texas. We all understand the concept of a burn pile. Most of us have a burn pile somewhere near our house, right? Anything you throw in there, it's going to get burned up. To invest in anything that's not eternal is to toss your life on the burn pile. It may not burn now, but when the, fire, when the burn band's over, it's all going up. When and where are you investing in those things? Are you giving your treasure, meaning your time, your gifts, your skills, and your sacrifice? Are you consistent to come and worship in community? Are you serving in community? Are you getting to know other believers intimately? Francis Chan warned years ago about the danger of the thousand pound Christians, Christians who just sit and demand to be fed. I go to that church because they feed me well. Okay, but are you serving? Yeah, that's a form of growing, I guess, but growing in flab isn't what we're looking for in the Christian world. We want to be growing in muscle, in discipline. Now, before you jump to performance mindset, I want to remind you once again that this is about Him. This is to Him be the glory. That if this book ends, this letter ends, to Him be the glory now and forever. Any other motivation is empty and destructive. If you're doing it to accomplish something other than to bring Him glory, you're going to burn out, and you should. So here are the series of questions. Are you engaged in intentional relationships meant to draw you nearer to Christ? for his glory. <clears throat> Are you intentionally involved in relationships meant to draw others nearer to Christ for his glory? Are you being intentional strategic about being a world-class example of an excellent spouse, an excellent parent, an excellent child, an excellent neighbor? Are you doing that for the glory of Christ? If the state turned against Christians, would you be in any danger of being arrested? Could you be convicted? Or would you skate through easily to the glory of Christ? What goes on your ministry page? See, generativity is a real thing. Discipleship is a real thing. But you can't wait until 845 to start discipling people. You can't wait until you somehow have some magical level of knowledge to start passing that on to other people. We must duplicate ourselves. And in a really cool world, we would do what Christ calls us to, which is to multiply ourselves. That I'm not replacing replacing my ministry with one person, but I would replace my ministry with dozens, hundreds, thousands of people would be the goal. The question for most of us now is not one of knowledge, it's one of obedience. If we can't see clear evidence of the gospel lived out in, in these ways, listen to this, in ridiculous generosity. The amount we give should be ridiculous to the world. It should be an eye-rolling level of, sacri- of, of generosity, of miraculous service, more than we could ever be actually doing, of shattering sacrifice, of shocking heartbreak and of overwhelming burdens. If our faith can be lived out without supernatural power from the triune God, then we're probably not doing it right. The ordinary Christian life is extraordinary. It's supernatural. It begins with a conversion. The first application of the gospel is to accept it as better than anything else as the best option out there. That follows from, from that follows repentance, exchanging empty things for eternal things. From that comes serving in community with others. So to be clear, you should be joining up at a smaller community, a life group, a dinner club, whatever, I don't care, of believers where you're learning and growing together. Where you're telling people you need to be serving here and you need to be serving other places in your faith. This is the message of 2 Peter. Here is the knowledge. Take it and do something with it. And get on it. Get it in gear. Give it the gas. And stay on it. This is the message. Stand with me if you will. I have to assume... That everyone in here who is a believer, that the Holy Spirit speaks to us in these moments and goes, here's something you could do. Here's something that would be different. Here's a mindset to change. Here's a behavior to change. For some of you, maybe it is conversion. I need to put my faith in a God who's going to make my life an eternal one with eternal significance. If that's the case, come let us know. We'd love to pray with you. Or let someone else in the room know who knows Jesus. If you know Christ and you're saying, man, here's what I need to do is I need to repent of some empty way of life handed down to me by my forefathers and instead invest in something eternal. All right, good. We'd love to pray with you about that or find someone else in the room who loves Jesus to pray with you. You might say, man, I need to be serving. Great, you can come let us know that or send an email in to one of our staff members and say, here's what I'm passionate about. Here's my heart. Here's what I love. How do I get involved? Good, that'd be great. We've got some ideas for you, I promise. Some that it will be here and some that will be outside of here. Um, whatever the proper response, whatever the Holy Spirit is leading us to, we need to get on it. 2 Peter tells us it's urgent. <clears throat> you don't want to wait till the clouds start rolling back to go, you know what, I should probably get on this. Nope, too late. Sorry, you missed the window. Invest in eternity and start it now. It only serves us as well as the kingdom. Let me read to you from Peter's first letter when he makes this clear. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. Oh, by the way, if you've not joined a family, a a church family, you've been through our Welcome Home team, you've talked to Lance and whoever else is part of that team, um, and you would like to come join our dysfunctional family here in a minute, we're going to have time for that as well. If you just want to pray with somebody, you can do that here, or there'll be people over in the corner who would love to pray with you and talk with you as well. So 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. Here we go. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's very grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The very words of God. Amen.